Those of you that don't know me, my name is Rick Sherman. It is my privilege to be up here sharing God's word with you today. Uh, we concluded a series on stewardship for the last month, and if uh, I do plan to actually tie stewardship in at the end of this sermon. And uh, next month, we were, are actually coming up on our Easter series. Um, so this month is for minister's choice, and so today, I plan to talk about the gospel. A strange thing, right, to talk about at church. And I plan to talk about it um, from Genesis to Revelation. So we have a lot to get to today. We're not going to park in one specific scripture passage. There will be lots of scripture. We will park in one briefly. I do plan to have the bulk of it on the screen for you. Uh, Those of you that are note takers, we're going to hop right in right away. We were created. Genesis 1.1. We know the verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When? I don't know. I'm not getting into that. Some of us have strong feelings on that, whether it was old earth or young earth, whether it were 24-hour days or whatever. You know what? I'm not getting into it because I don't care. What matters is that God created. He created. The when is not important. God created the heavens and the earth. When? In the beginning. That's who did. We are created beings. This immediately sets us apart. The gospel starts in Genesis 1.1. Why? Because you are not your own. You are not your own if you're a created being. We have a higher power to who give account as created beings. In the New Testament, it says the the clay will not tell the potter what to do. We are created beings. We immediately have, out of the chute, a higher power to answer to as created beings. In Genesis 1.27, that we are created in his image. We were not created as a rock and then something that crawled out of the sea onto land and then grew legs. And there are no primates in your DNA. We were created in his image. In a triune God, if you go back a verse, it is Genesis 1.26. Let us create man in our image. Who is that referring to? That is all three members of the Godhead. That is Jesus, that is God, and that is the Holy Spirit. And if I do my job today, here today, we will talk about all three of those. That is a triune God in Genesis 1.1. Who is this creator? This creator in Isaiah 45.5 says, There is none beside me. In Job 38, I love Job 38, 39, 40. Sometimes in the summer when we have full moons and the bright moons, I actually drive my car into the country and try and read those verses by moonlight. They are such great verses. That is Job interacting with God, and God is saying, Job, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars in their place? Where were you when I told the ocean, you come this far? And no further. Exodus 33.20, no one can see God and live. And Hebrews 6.13 is talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And God swears by what in that covenant? He swears by himself. Why? Because there is none higher for God to swear by. There is nothing higher than God. In God of all mankind, in Jeremiah 32, 27. In Isaiah 42, 8, we read that he will not share his glory with another. 
This is our creator. In Revelation 1.8, also in 21.6, we see again the beginning, the alpha, and the end. And actually, God has no beginning and end. It's kind of a mind-blowing concept, right? Because everything we have has finite and has a beginning and an end, and God does not. This, the creator. Well, how big is he really, right? Do we actually believe it? Psalm 147, 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Skill testing question. How many stars are there? Anybody? A lot. That's that's a perfectly correct answer. Write that down. He determines the number of stars and calls them by name. You know everyone's name in the building today? 200 billion trillion stars. He named them, and he put them there. This, our creator. Do you believe the Bible? This is just simply an aside, but it is just flowing through my head the last few months. Do we believe the Bible? Do we believe some of it? Do we believe all of it? Or some of it's just relative? I'm not getting into this, but I'm just, just had to mention it. Do we believe it? Because we're quoting a lot of scripture today. It's what we stand on up here. Back to Genesis. In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were given one rule. One rule. Don't eat from the tree of the good, knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know how much time elapsed between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, but we couldn't follow one rule. One. And that became then the curse, right? We inherited the curse from Adam and Eve, and that came from the garden to us today. We have all inherited that sin nature. And then came the law and the sacrificial system. And the law in the Old Testament saved no one. Not one person is saved by the law. The law was designed to point out that we cannot uphold God's holy commandments and teachings perfectly. The law was then had sacrificial systems. I won't get into a bunch of them, but very sim- not simply. But here in Leviticus 17, we have for the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. When there's a shortcoming, then blood needs to be shed to make atonement. Because we cannot live up to the law. I talked about God being big. I now want to talk about another characteristic of his, that he is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4, 8. The only time in scripture a word is repeated three times back to back to back. Holy, holy, holy is God. God is perfect in word and in deed. In 2 Samuel and also in Psalm 18, 30. Perfect in word and deed. God is righteous. Psalm, psalm 11, 7. Psalm 119 is a fantastic psalm. It is not short, but it is great reading. I'm really enjoying studying it in our men's Bible study. And Psalm 119, 160 last week, God's words are true. And I'm not going to get into politics or anything else in this earth, but what honestly on this earth do we find that is genuinely actually true? God. God is everlasting. He never wearies. Isaiah 40. 
Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8, God never changes. Why? Because he doesn't have to. He is true, and he is perfect, and he is holy. We use those words on earth, but God is those things. God cannot look on sin. Habakkuk 1.13. And here Leviticus 16.14, and he shall take some of the blood, blood again, of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Done annually before you go into the holy of holies. You will not come in here unholy. There needs to be blood to make you holy. Are we living up? How are we doing? This Old Testament stuff, right? How are we doing? How are you doing with the Ten Commandments? I actually do okay with those. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I do okay. Oh, a little white lie once in a while maybe, but I don't bear false witness in court. I do okay. How's about with Jesus' view of the Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount? How about when you're angry with someone, you committed murder? How you doing on the Ten Commandments now? How about Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, if you lust after someone, that's like committing adultery. Ten Commandments hit a little harder when it's not actions, when it's in our heart, don't they? James 2.9 uh, says that if you broke one law, you're guilty of breaking all of them. How are we doing? We will reap what we sow. Well, what am I sowing? The wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. Well, surely this is not everybody, right? It's just me. I'm the one that's got the problem. Well, Isaiah 53.6 is we all have gone astray. I didn't put the verse up here, but there is a way that seems right to a man. And in the end, it brings him death. Jeremiah, one of the holier people that have walked the earth, says, what is the human heart? Desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Hebrews 10.31 is, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And Isaiah, again, another beacon of holiness and an example for us, what does he say? He says, woe is me when I stand before a holy God. We have a real problem, folks. I was at a service recently, and the guy that was preaching said, you know, we have, we have shortcomings and that we have imperfections. And I thought, well, that's true, but that sure resonates so much better on a human level, right? We have shortcomings if we have imperfections. I don't know, maybe you've met the guy that thinks he's perfect, but I think, truth be told, no one on earth thinks they're perfect. Maybe you've met someone that does. But those are lateral we have shortcomings. Well, you know, I'm not the best, and I didn't fully make the mark. This is different. Folks, we have God, perfect and holy and infallible, and, and there's just absolutely per- and true. We are none of those things in our hearts. If I haven't made that point, we have a problem. We have a gap. I couldn't think of an analogy, but we have a gap between God and us that we have no hope of ever getting past on our own. There is such a wide chasm there. It's not just we have a shortcoming, we almost made it. Like a scratch and dent fridge. Well, it works, but the door's dinged. We don't have that. Our gap between us and God is, I can't quantify it. We have a problem. 
Those of you that are note takers, I'm going fast, would follow me along. And so this then is the solution. And I get this from an old guy that used to preach, and this has stuck with me for a long time, is that God took some drastic action. God took the drastic action a couple thousand years ago. Why? We don't always get told why, but we did sing about it earlier. Why? It's because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. And why? Because Luke 19 said, said the son of man came to what? Seek and save the lost. That was us. Lost. And in his love, he sent Jesus. And Jesus burst on the scene, right, in Matthew 1, as the virgin birth. Read this. One percent. I put this up here for a little levity. One percent of births in America are apparently virgin births. Do you guys know that? Do you graduate grade school without not knowing how this happens? That apparently 1% of people think they can fool us. The virgin birth is a crazy concept. It's absurd in human terms, right? It doesn't happen that way in human terms. I want to talk about now God being fully, Jesus being fully God and fully man. Also, in human terms, a concept that does not work. But folks, some things we have to take on faith. And I believe it's integral that Jesus was fully God and fully man to our faith. This makes no sense using human logic. Jesus, fully man. John 1, 2, the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. I don't think it can be any clearer than that. However, Jesus grew up in Luke 2.40, grew up in stature. He was a baby, he was a boy, he grew up to be a man. Jesus physically grew. Jesus ate, he drank, he slept, he got tired. Man, human. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. He wept because he loved Lazarus humanly. He wept human emotion. Jesus, in Hebrews 4.14, the author there says that Jesus was tempted in every way like us, human. Jesus in the garden, take this cup from me. Jesus wants his way. There's nothing wrong with that prayer, actually, because in the end, Jesus says, no, God, your will be done. But I'd sure prefer if I didn't have to walk this path. Jesus wants his way, but he submitted to God. Jesus, we don't say these things. Spirits or ghosts or whatever, demons don't have these characteristics. Jesus, fully man. Jesus, fully God. I intentionally quoted John 1, 2. Here is John 1, 1. The word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word is God. Jesus, God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Him that knew no sin took on our sin. God. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Colossians 1.19, all the fullness of God. In 1 Peter 2.24, that he bore our sins, Jesus. 
Acts 4.12, by one name on earth are we saved. Jesus, fully God. And Peter, um, John the Baptist, I'm sorry, when he sees Jesus coming, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of man. Jesus, God. We don't say those things about humans. So here, let's read this passage. This is Isaiah 53 in your pew Bible if you want to look up. It's, it's uh, page 613. But uh, I will simply read it here off the wall in a moment. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely... Sorry, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Folks, this is where it hits. This is the cross. What happened on the cross? Christ was on the cross for six hours, three of those hours was dark. Christ, fully God and fully man, on the cross. This is the crux of salvation here. He had no form that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. A chapter previous in Isaiah 52, it says that Jesus was barely recognizable as a human. That is how bad they beat him. They punched him in the face. They hit him with rods in the face. He was beaten. He was flogged within an inch of his life. A man of sorrows, do you think, and acquainted with grief, did Jesus look over Jerusalem and weep? Weep for her sin and weep for what was going to happen? As one of whom from men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Did we not yell out, crucify him, crucify him? Did we strip him down and put a crown of thorns on his heads and punch him in the face and say, Jesus, who punched you? Did we esteem him? Surely he has borne our griefs and was carried our sorrows. Did he carry the cross for us physically? He most certainly did. Did he carry our sorrows? He wasn't carrying his. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. What happened on the cross? We talked about God being holy and just and he can't look on sin. What happened on the cross? Can't God just ignore sin and just, just look away and, and forgive me because I'm okay and then the Adolf Hitlers of the world and the Hirohitos and some of the terrible people, Jeffrey Dahmer, that have committed horrible things, can't they be punished for their sin and God just ignore mine because I'm not too bad? Well, as soon as that happens or you propose that, then you don't have a holy God because he's not just, because you have sinned and you are accountable for your sin. And so what happens on the cross is Jesus Christ took on our sin. In our place. Some people call this penal substitution. Some people call it substitutionary atonement. But it is absolutely critical. Jesus took on our sin. A man who had no sin took on my sin for me. He was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him. He was smitten by God on the cross. The physical pain aside. On the cross, Jesus in his brain is taking on the sin. All of the sin, the full cup of God's wrath for all sin committed, past, present, and future, is poured on Jesus. 
Jesus is taking it all on. In my brain, he is getting flashed through all horrible sins that have ever been committed, and they are flashing through his brain, and he is seeing it like a bad dream on steroids. I don't know if that's a good analogy. I just why I said it. But he is taking on all our sin. A man who had no sin, a God who had no sin, and he was pierced for our transgressions. Did the crown of thorns pierce his, his brow? Yes. Did we put nails through his hands and his feet? He was pierced for our transgressions physically. Did we jam a spear in his side when he was on the cross? He was pierced for what? What he did? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for what? Our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds, we are healed. Folks, I get excited. This is it. That's what happened on the cross. That is what happened on the cross. Jesus took on what I deserved and what I should have got and what you should have got, and he took it for us, perfectly innocent, and he took the full cup of God's wrath. All of it for us. Hebrews 9, 23 through 26. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is the cross. And the cross doesn't end in death. A humiliating device of torture and humiliation, I said that, and, act, and a device of um, capital punishment, but it doesn't end at the cross. And just to go back momentarily to fully God and fully man, who rose? Thomas touched his wounds. The man rose. John 21, 15, a completely innocuous verse in the Bible. Bread and fish by the fire, and they ate. The man rose. But the man just didn't rise because in Acts 2.24, death could not hold him. God rose. In Luke 24.5, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Romans 8.34. And for eternity... It will be worthy is the lamb that was slain. Freedom, folks, that is freedom now and forever. It's freedom now and forever. And the curse of sin and death is broken on that resurrection morning for us. For us now and forever. So how do we get this? How do we get this? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from you. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no no one may boast. We get this. 
pardon me, through faith. The good news, the gospel is for everybody. So in the end, everybody is just saved and it's all good? No. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you get salvation. You get the gospel in your life through faith. This then is the work of the Holy Spirit, who I referenced earlier. The Holy Spirit plants that, and you have to accept that through faith. Well, I believe it. No, it's a little bit deeper of faith than that. And that, again, is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, saying, do you believe this? The woman Brady preached on a little bit ago that had the bleeding issue that touched Jesus' garment, what does Jesus say to her? Your faith has made you whole. The centurion who had a soldier who was under some dress that approached Jesus, and Jesus said to him, it will be done as you believed. It is your faith that saves you, that saves us. It is the faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. It, you don't, everyone just doesn't get it. It has to come. And it is a blessing and a privilege to come to God through faith. And if we do that, then our sins aren't judged. They're forgiven. Because Jesus paid the price for them. And then this starts. See, when I first thought about this, I thought the gospel, I can wrap this up in five minutes. This is going to be a quick, easy sermon. And the deeper I got, I was like, I'm, and I'm, I'm flying over at a high level. And someone afterwards is going to say, Rick, you forgot something. And I'll probably say, yeah, I did. But I'm trying to hit the high points because then what? So we have the gospel. We have God, um, the creator. And we have um, that we had a problem and we had that he sent Jesus. And Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he took our sins and we have to accept that through faith. It just doesn't permeate to the whole world accidentally. But then what? Then we have a transformation in our lives. The only analogy I could use here is the Holy Spirit lights a fire and we have it. And then it's not just you punch your ticket. And oh God, I believe and this is great. And I've got a ticket punched to heaven and, and that's all good. It's actually better than that, even though that's really good. It is actually transforming our lives by the renewing of our minds. This happens now on this earth. And the gospel doesn't guarantee that life is going to be great and all your problems will go away and everything is going to be great. But what the gospel does guarantee is that you have Jesus if you accept it on faith and that the, through the renewing of our minds, we are growing into his image in 2 Corinthians 3.8. We are being transformed through the renewing of our minds into the image of Christ here and now, the gospel is the Holy Spirit in our hearts is working on us now to conform us more to that image. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. All the way back to creation, you're not your own, which are God's. And that is why Paul says that to live, to live now. And Paul is talking about now. You know, I've got to believe that there are people in North Korea in prison camps that are living exactly where God wants them. The freedom in Christ is not him taking us out of our circumstances and making life good. The true freedom, the true peace of understanding is living now where God wants you. And that might be a bad spot. I have got to believe there's, palace, there's people that are Christians in Palestine right now, house in ruins, worshiping their Savior where God put them. That is what Paul says. To live now 
is Christ. As close as we can get to the center of his will. It is about living now. Eternity will be great. But folks, we can have in our hearts, and this is a challenge to me, we'll get to that in a second. But we can have now that peace. And we need to live, like Paul said, to live is Christ. And to die is just better. It's now. Okay. So, meet Rusty. I'll preface this a moment by saying some of you have noticed me up here a little bit limping a little bit. I'm doing a little bit of that today. Um, Since July, my left knee has been bugging me intermittently. Had it diagnosed. It's got a little tear in there. But did some physiotherapy, and actually since September, it's been really good. Two weeks ago, my right knee that I had replaced five years ago blew up out of nowhere. So on July 1st, I had two good knees that I never thought about. And standing here on February 4th, I have two bad knees. It's actually been very frustrating. We'll get to that in a second. The goal with Rusty. Rusty is old and tired. There's no doubt. My goal for Rusty when I gave Sarah my car when she went away to school in September was to get Rusty through till spring. And I thought... Rusty's going to have a hiccup between now and spring, but we don't have car payments, and we're going to get Rusty through till spring. Rusty's tires were slicks, so I figured snow was coming, so we put some tires on the week after Christmas. The week after that, why is there oil underneath my van? Well, that's because you're leaking not just engine oil, you're leaking transmission oil also. Okay, thought about it, is Rusty worth fixing? Yeah, we'll we'll do this, and then this is the hiccup I was expecting. You know, we'll we'll get this out of the way. One week later, Rusty doesn't want to start. Remember it was cold a couple weeks ago? Rusty thought, we need a new alternator. Okay, Uh, very fortunately, to save some money, a good friend of mine came over to the garage to help me change the alternator, And by help, that means he provided the brains and the brawn, and I provided the heat and the sarcastic wit. But that helped on the pocketbook a good bit. That was last week. Last Friday, I backed Rusty out of the driveway, onto the road, put it in drive. Gook! That wasn't good. Hit the accelerator. Oh, that's metal grinding on metal hard. I can't imitate the sound, but that, that's not good. Well, let me put this thing in reverse and get it off the road. I don't have reverse. I put Rusty in park. And I'm glad to tell you that what I did then is I got out of Rusty, parked kind of halfway on the road, and I went to my office and I prayed James 1, 1, and 2. And I said, God, thank you for this trial I know it is persevering my faith, and I have tremendous joy in this trial. What I actually did was I limped into the garage, and I got Beth's car out, and I parked it kind of behind Rusty and put the four-ways on to divert traffic, and I was seething. I was livid. The car was filling with smoke, but the smoke wasn't coming from the engine. I'm in Beth's car now. It's fine. The smoke was coming out of my ears. And I could have spit blood. I mean, I'm telling you, I was just livid. God, I got two bad knees. 
I'm 1,500 bucks into a car that is dead on the road in front of my house. I'm fuming. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm going through the things. How do I get the car off the road? i got to get to work. What do we do now? Do I get this thing towed? What do I do? And I'm just scrolling through the files in my brain. And I hit the radio on best car. I hit the button. And instantly, it is the chorus of blessed assurance. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And that chorus repeated itself. And I stopped there in that car. I hit rock bottom. And God is like, Rick, what is your story? And what is your song? Because at that moment, my story and my song was all about me. And my knee and my car and me and me and me. And I wasn't living the gospel at that moment. Shame on me. We've had a few hiccups since, but I will tell you my attitude has been much better since last Friday. We talked about stewardship Folks, we are stewards first and foremost of the gospel. Do I steward the gospel in my life? Do I steward the gospel in my life? Do I guard its truth and value? And I'm not talking about putting, my, putting the gospel in a gun safe under lock and key or hiding it under a bushel. I am saying, do we guard, do we steward the gospel? Folks, there is tons and tons of false gospels out there. I'm not going to give them due diligence up here by naming them. I'm going to give you one simple way to identify false gospels. What do they do with Christ? When the false gospels murk Christ, and Christ didn't do all that, or it's Christ and then the red flags need to be going up. The hair on the back of your neck needs to be going up. Are we preserving and guarding the truth of the gospel and only the truth of the gospel? Do I promote the gospel personally? Do I promote it? Do I live it? Do I live it out? Do I promote it to my coworkers, my peers, people at school? Do I promote the gospel? Where's the gospel rank in God's books? God says Jesus is not coming back till what? Till the gospel goes to every tribe and tongue. If God is saying it's so important that everybody needs to hear it, am I promoting it? Because that's where God ranks it. Does the gospel permeate every area of my life? Or have I set up barriers? Have I compartmentalized my life? God, you can have everything but. If I'm honest with myself, I can clearly look back at times in my life when I have done that. Do I let the gospel permeate every area of my life? I love Peter's words in John 6, 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Folks, it is good to remember who we worship. It is good to remember our creator and how big he is. Folks, it is good to remember how lost we were. Brothers and sisters, it is good to remember the price that was paid for us. It is good to be transformed by the gospel now. And folks, it is good to remember our eternity. <laughs>